Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in the last program, we were looking at the last several verses of Genesis 7, which describe the events of the flood in Noah's day. So we've come to Genesis chapter 8. But before you start talking about chapter 8, I have one question about a statement in chapter 7. (laughs) Okay, Scott, what statement is it? Well, it's in verse 20, but can we read verses 19 and 20? Of course. Go ahead. Okay. Genesis 7, 19. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. Okay, I have a feeling I know what your question is, but go ahead. What is it? Well, it's actually two questions, (laughs) but they're related to each other. All right. In verse 19, it refers to high mountains everywhere were covered. Now, you've discussed in detail that all the language in the flood account indicates it was a global flood. Perhaps no verse more clearly demonstrates that than verse 19. That's right. If that were the only verse we had describing the depth of the flood, that would be enough to conclude that the flood covered the entire earth. So I'm not questioning whether or not it was a global flood. Mm -hmm. My question is, given the amount of water we have on earth and the height of some of the mountain ranges like the Alps or the Himalayas and even the Rockies, there just doesn't seem to be enough water on earth to cover those mountains. And verse 20 said the water prevailed 15 cubits above them. So where did all the water go? And by the way, how high is 15 cubits? (laughs) Those are excellent questions. And in order to use measurements we understand, I'll answer the cubit question first. Okay. Uh, Remember the dimensions of the ark were also given in cubits. It was a standard measurement used in the ancient world, similar to how we use the term meter or yard. But one problem with the meaning of a cubit is we have found different lengths for a cubit recorded over the many centuries of ancient literature. However, they are all fairly similar. That is, they vary from 17 and a half to 20 and a half inches. Now, Answers in Genesis did extensive research on this. Yeah, well, that makes sense. They wanted to make a realistic, full-scale replica of the ark. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to use their findings. The length of a cubit was based on the distance from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. Now, the standard Hebrew cubit was 17 and a half inches long, but there was also what was called the royal Hebrew cubit, mm. which was 20 and a half inches long. And so, you know, just to see for myself, I measured my arm from the elbow to the tip of my middle finger, and it was just under 19 inches long, a little longer than I thought. So, Scott, let's see how long your cubit is. Okay. Well, look at that. It's a little more than 19 inches. (laughs) All right. So, your cubit and my cubit are not the same. It would make for a difficult standard. (laughs) And we don't know at this point exactly what the length of a cubit was that God was telling Noah to use when he built the ark 300 cubits long. But the ark that the Answers in Genesis group built is 510 feet long. So here comes some math, Scott. Uh Uh-oh. What length of cubit did they use? Okay, I know how to do this. 510 feet times 12 inches divided by 300 cubits is the answer. 
I just can't do the math in my head. Well, that's well done. The answer is 20.4 inches. So Answers in Genesis used the royal cubit measurement to build their replica. So let's use that length to answer how high Genesis 7.20 said the water of the flood stood above the mountains. 20.4 inches times 15 cubits is 306 inches, which is just over 25 feet. And even if we use the shorter Hebrew cubit, at 17 and a half inches, the water still would have been about 22 feet higher than the highest mountains. Now that represents a colossal volume of water, Dr. Scripture. Mm -hmm. Let's use Mount Rainier in Washington State as an example. Mount Rainier is the tallest mountain in the lower 48 of the United States. Mm -hmm. It stands 14,400 feet above sea level. Whether the water was 25 feet or 25 inches above the mountains, there's just not that much water on Earth to cover Mount Rainier, <laughs> or I would guess most any mountains in the Rockies. So where did all that water go? Well, Scott, you're absolutely right when you say there's not that much water on Earth, even with the depth of some of the trenches in the oceans. I've not done the calculations myself, but I've heard that if the Earth was a smooth sphere, no mountains or valleys or ocean basins, the water covering the Earth would be about one and a half miles deep. Hmm. But as you point out, Mount Rainier is almost three miles high above sea level. So how could the water present on the Earth possibly cover it, or even any mountain near 10,000 feet high? The answer is not an explanation of where the water went. It's where did the mountain ranges of today come from? Were the mountains that existed on Earth that high in elevation before the flood? Well, the creation flood models all propose they were not. In other words, as the water began to rise during those 40 days and nights of rain and water surging up from the ground, the crust of the Earth, perhaps consisting of that one large continent called Pangaea, simply didn't have the mountain ranges that were produced as a result of the breakup of Pangaea. Hmm. That breakup would cause tectonic plates to start moving rapidly and smashing into one another, the result being the rumpling and the uplifting of the crust, forming the high mountain ranges we have today. So you're suggesting the mountains covered by the early stages of the flood were just not as tall as those formed after or by the flood? Exactly. And so, using some of the measurements we mentioned earlier, the mountains that existed on Earth before the flood could have been well over a mile high in elevation. If the ocean was no more than a half a mile deep, let's say, then there's plenty of water on Earth to cover all the land, even the highest mountains. Okay, that makes sense, and fits with the flood models you discussed in the last few programs. But I do have one more question. You know, we haven't gotten to Genesis chapter 8 yet, Scott. I know, I know. But I really wonder about this. Okay. <laughs> How did Noah know? Because we've been assuming throughout our study of the Genesis flood account that Noah recorded the events and details that we read. Mm -hmm. How did Noah know the water was 15 cubits or 25 feet above the mountains? You know, I've thought about that, too. And I've come up with two possibilities. First, the Lord could have simply revealed it to Noah and he wrote it down, and that's perfectly fine. But I actually like the second possibility better, which is Noah used a rope 
as a depth finder to gauge how far below the surface of the water the tops of the mountains were. It seems to me that's something he would have certainly been interested in knowing. Hmm. He could have tossed a rope out, let it down until it touched bottom. Then he could calculate how high the water was above the tops of the mountains. But however that measurement was known, as I've pointed out before, what we should also take away from such details being recorded is these were real events experienced by Noah and those on the ark. And God made sure we had a detailed account of what happened because it really did happen. Exactly. Well, Dr. Scripture, thanks for answering those questions I had. (laughs) Scott, if you had them, I'm sure many others did too. True. So now let's move on to Genesis chapter 8. And as I summarized chapter 6 as the events leading up to the flood, and chapter 7 as the dynamics of the flood, I would summarize chapter 8 as the recession of the flood. Remember, at the end of chapter 7, it had been 150 days since the flood began, and we left Noah and everyone with him floating above the mountains. Read Genesis 7:24, Scott. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And then we come to Genesis 8:1, and I'm going to just read the first half of the verse. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. So what do you think, Scott? After 150 days, do you think God was off doing something else and suddenly he thought, oh no, how is Noah and everybody on the ark doing? I better check. (laughs) I highly doubt that the Lord forgot about Noah. (laughs) Yes, of course, that's silly. But what does it mean when it says God remembered Noah? Well, that idea of God remembering something or someone is found many times in the Bible. And the sense is, he is going to act on someone's behalf or act on a promise he had made. So, an example is when the Israelites had been in slavery for hundreds of years, and it says in Exodus 2.24, So God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And another example is when the childless Hannah was in the temple pleading to God for a child, and Eli the priest said to her, May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked him. And shortly after that, then, in 1 Samuel 1.19, it says, Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So, what action was God about to take when it says in Genesis 8.1 that he remembered Noah? He was going to save Noah and all those on the ark by causing the flood to dissipate or recede, and they could all eventually get off the ark and start life over. What follows then is a description of what God did and what happened over the next seven months. I'll read Genesis 8-1 again, and Scott, then you continue reading. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. And the water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. 
Then it came about at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Now we'll have to stop here at the end of verse 16. But notice what we've read is a very detailed record of the water receding from the flooded land. And I submit it is reasonable. It didn't take a few days, but it didn't take years and years either. In fact, we're told exactly how long it took from the day the flood began until they were told they could leave the ark. It was one year and 10 days. We're given amazing detail in this account. But to conclude today, I'll read Genesis 8-1 again. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says. 